0: Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. Talking of the global economy, I wonder, have you thought much about France recently? I bet the last time you really paid it any attention was about the second half of last year, watching pictures of angry French people in high-vis jackets, their gilets jaunes, rioting on the streets and generally causing trouble for President Emmanuel Macron. His poll ratings collapsed and many decided that le macronisme c'est fini. He ended up giving in to some of the Gilets Jaunes requests, including an extra 10 billion euros worth of targeted tax cuts. Nice for the recipients, but not a great result for the Western leader who was supposed to be turning the tide against populism. But that was then. This week, The French have been hosting the G7 meeting of finance ministers and central bank governors. And you have to say that France and the French economy are looking better than most. I went to Paris beginning of this week to find out more. In this episode, we're going to play you two interviews from that trip. The first with the French finance minister himself, Bruno Le Maire, and the second with Laurence Boone, the extremely smart chief economist of the OECD. Now, Monsieur Le Maire is known for being a mischievous finance minister. He sometimes likes to make a splash. I think when I spoke to him in his grand office at the French Treasury, he didn't want to make many waves with the G7 coming to town. But see for yourself. Listen to first the edited interview with him, and then hang on for a more candid take on France and the state of economics from Laurence Boone. wanted to talk about president macron and how, where he stands in the global stage when he became uh, president uh, he did seem to be in confronting one of the big challenges that people face populism he was going to be a role model for for the free world in showing us how to defeat populism if you were looking at the last year or so you'd say well the lesson of, of uh, the, the example that macron is setting is you need to give in to the populace and then you do fine. Is that, is that the lesson of the response to the gilets jaunes, the yellow vestes, last year?
1: I think that the, the right response to the yellow jackets movement is to take into account the uh, difficulties that many people, either in France or in any European country, are facing The rise of inequalities among developed countries is a key issue. The differences between the highest wages and the other wages is a key difficulty. Uh, The fact that some of the people, either in France or once again in any other country, are not able to live from their earning is a key question. And I think that the Yellow Jacket Movement is not only a French movement, but it's also the evidence that there is a problem with the capitalism as it stands. We need to improve capitalism. And I think that uh, the fact that we have decided to stick to the path of reforms by taking also into account the requirements of all the people that are asking for more uh, fairness, for more justice, is the best way of dealing with that issue. But
0: they took their concerns to the streets, including with violence, and the response of the government was to give in, was to give I in to several say of that. their demands.
1: I would not say that. We are not giving to violence. We are against any kind of violence, of course. But um, even if uh, the movement of the Yellow Jackets has transformed at the end into uh, violent uh, demonstrations and uh, violent, um, including attacks uh, against uh, the policemen and uh, uh, stores uh, on the streets, and so on. I think that we should not undermine what is behind the Yellow Jacket movement. Behind the Yellow Jacket movement, there are men and women that are not living decently from their jobs and from their earnings. And they are just asking for a a kind of decency. They want to have a decent life. They want to live from their jobs. And all our policy is trying to give a concrete response to that fair requirement. We want work to pay. And that's it. That's at the heart of our economic policy.
0: And in pushing your version of uh the right economic model, the French economic model and what they believe Europe should look like. Is it going to be easier if and when you can ever get rid of the UK if the UK finally does uh, achieve Brexit?
1: No. Uh, I I really think that the the fact that uh, the UK is uh, leaving the EU is a pity. And I'm sad about that, frankly speaking.
0: France is hosting this G7 and uh, it looks like uh, luck is on, on France's side at the moment. There are things that have been failures in the past, like failures to to boost exports significantly over the years, um, a failure to, to rein in borrowing and debt. And now if we look this year, both of those things look like strengths. France is, is less exposed to the trade wars and actually has loosened fiscal policy, potentially just as other people are starting to say their economies need a bit more support. So are, are you are you a model for the rest of the world or just very lucky?
1: I would not say that we are a model and I would not say that we are lucky. I would just say that uh, we are strongly willing to uh, improve the competitiveness of the French economy. And I think that with Emmanuel Macron, we have taken the right decisions. We have taken the right decisions by um, transforming our uh, taxation system, by uh, improving our uh, labour market and by taking all the required decisions to support our uh, enterprises and our SMEs. So I think with that we are on the right track. We have very concrete results. I mean that the uh, level of growth is a satisfying one, even if we can do more and that we can improve that situation. We are reducing the level of uh, unemployment uh, in France. So we are on the right track but we are fully determined to stick to the path of reforms for the sake of having better results.
0: When you think about the things you want to change, it does look like this summit is going to be hijacked by the big internet companies. There's been much discussion around from Donald Trump tweeting, criticising the French proposal for taxing these big internet companies on their trade in the country... Um, But also you have talked about the concerns around Libra and uh, the Facebook's uh, proposed new currency. So do you think that's going to end up dominating everything?
1: I think that's a key issue and it will dominate not only the summer, but I think that uh, all this issue of the um, digital giants will dominate the um, economic debate for the next decade. I think that's a key issue, and you should uh, also mention the fact that the US administration has decided to uh, impose a penalty of uh, $5 billion uh, on uh, Facebook, which is a clear signal of the necessity of putting more regulation among the uh, internet giants and the necessity to build together a fair regulation for the internet giants. Then there is a question of the currency, the so-called Libra, the the project from uh, Facebook. I think that we have to be very cautious and we have to avoid this proposal, Libra, becoming a kind of a sovereign currency. I don't want a private company to take the role of a sovereign state and having the power of installing a sovereign currency. I think that it would be a threat for the sovereignty of the state, and it uh, would not fit our ID of what a sovereign currency should
0: be. There's a lot of opposition to this proposal, but I wonder, in practice, how easy is it going to be to prevent Facebook from introducing this proposal? I mean, it's one thing to set themselves up as a bank, but having just a method of payment globally, arguably they already have the capacity to do that.
1: If it, don- if it is only a method of payment, fine. But if that method of payment uh, becomes a sovereign currency, it might be a problem. We also have to ensure to all citizens that there is no problem with uh, money laundering, for instance, or the funding of uh, terrorism. So we have to give all the insurances to our uh, citizens that uh, this way of uh, exchanging goods is sticking to the same kind of commitments that everybody is obliged to take.
0: You could say this. Actually, even this opposition and debate shows how dominant these companies have become in their influence on the discussions at global levels. I mean, this is a G7 meeting of finance ministers and one proposal by one company, it sounds like, is going to take quite a big chunk of your discussions.
1: Yes, but you know, it is not um, any company. It is not the smallest company of the world. It is one of the biggest companies of the world. So I think that it's our job to uh, define the regulatory framework that is necessary to avoid any risks linked to the creation of uh, such uh, a Libra.
0: Well, that's what we try and get into the issues as well on the Stephanomics podcast. So thank you very much, uh, Monsieur Le Maire.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: So that was Bruno Le Maire, the French finance minister, speaking just before the G7 meeting of finance ministers and central bank governors that he was hosting in Chantilly in northern France. Now here's Laurence Boone, chief economist at the OECD. Laurence, uh, welcome to Stephanomics. Um, I was talking to the finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, earlier. He's very focused on The G7. But I, and he meant, he said that he thought maybe France was a model for other countries. I thought if they are a model, it's by luck. You know, Mm -hmm. you've had years of not managing to really significantly increase their net exports and their success in the global trading system, not really getting on top of their debt and their borrowing, as OECD and others Mm -hmm. have often told them to do. And most recently, giving in to the populists, giving them quite a lot of money to make them go away. Do you think that is a model that the rest of the world should follow? Ignore, ignore the OECD advice on lots of things and you'll end up uh, coming smelling of roses.
2: So there's one thing which I think is true, um, is that, as you were alluding to, France is much less dependent on global trade and exports than many other Euro-area countries, whereas you will see... That in Germany, for example, about 20% of of the value added is coming from manufacturing. Uh, In France, it's only 10%. So when. The
0: same as the UK, although the French are always saying that they're much bigger manufacturers (laughs) than
2: the UK. Well, they have their own brand, and in the UK, (laughs) it might not be always the the local brand. But so that's true that when, when the economy is going down because of a contraction in trade or a slowdown in trade and France attempts to suffer much less than the other. You saw that in 2009 with the big crisis where the recession was about half what it was in other countries. But conversely, when the rest of the world is booming on the back of expansion, expansionary trade, then France is going uh, less fast. All in all... Uh, France comes as a welfare-forming country in 2019. Um, But it's still one and a quarter percent of GDP growth is, you know, not exactly a boom. Uh, (laughs) So, but in France, we like to be proud too.
0: (laughs) Well, but it is striking. I mean, years of people pointing to France's, you know, now I think nearly 100% Gross. debt rate public yeah. debt ratio is a share of the uh, economy the very large share of government spending in the economy include and something like 60% if you're also including the in- industries that are owned by the, by the government. The OECD and others have been telling France for years that it ought to do more dramatic reform, that it was stuck in the past, that it was going to face the, have to face the music at some point. It's never really had to face the music. In fact, as I say, now it seems to be doing quite nicely relative to well, others.
2: So. I think it had to face the music, in a sense, with what happened in December and the Gilets Jaunes. That was quite a big wake-up call about the French of the social economic background in France. Um, It was a big wake-up call in terms of, yes, France is a highly redistributive country, and you alluded to it, 57% of GDP public spending is the OECD record, Um, but this massive redistribution is actually not enough to address people' concern, and I think what happened in December should really shed light on the structural issues that France has, which is mostly a huge inequalities of opportunities. Um, we've just published our flagship publication, "Going for Growth," which monitors reforms uh, on product market, labor market, uh, and. And I think we can fairly say that there's still a lot to do in France. Even so, I must say that that reforms have been proceeding uh, for the past few years, even if sometimes in small steps. But it's, it's the beginning of a journey.
0: I have to say, you mentioned that report. Um, I have, I've probably been doing this job too long, but I've read a lot, I've read a lot of similar reports from <laughs> the OECD. Um, and that's we normal.
2: We publish it with her. Yes, years. no, that's
0: absolutely right. And uh, well, but also in sort of other fields. And of mm. course, you've not been uh, chief economist uh, for for all of that period. But I was sort of struck that the the description of the problem changes mm. in these reports. So in your, you talk about. Um, the need to particularly the sort of inclusive element. We need to raise opportunities for all um, challenges of globalization, digitalization, aging, environment is more front and center than mm-hmm. it has been maybe in the past. But the solutions that the OECD sees to all these problems seem to be much similar <laughs> to the ones they saw before. I mean, we always need to have structural reform of product markets and labor markets. I mean, some people would say it was doing some of those reforms in some of these countries that caused the political backlashes which governments are now dealing with.
2: Um, I think, in a sense, some of what you say, is, uh, some of what you alluded to is, is actually right, right? Um, if you look at the headline of the reform we recommend, they look pretty much the same. But when you look uh, at a more granular level and looking for it, that's something we want to do more of. They've actually evolved quite significantly. Let me take the example of the minimum wage. Um, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, I'm not sure you were reading it already, mm-hmm. but, you know, and informingly, the OECD would say minimum wage, bad for employment and labour market. I think when you look at what we do now, and it's visible in going for growth or the job strategy, we are much more precise and it depends a lot more on the countries.
0: There's been, definitely been a change of uh, attitude across the world, well, certainly across a lot of economics mm-hmm. economists uh, on the minimum wage. But I was thinking... For example, of the sort of structural reforms you talk about, reforms to boost competition in markets for goods and services, opening up markets to entry, uh, competition and foreign trade is essential for innovation, you know, have all this stuff. But when you do that, I mean, the way that it changes, the way that it increases innovation Mm -hmm. and increases efficiency is by forcing some companies to close down and forcing some people out of work and putting them into other things. And it's precisely that kind of structural change that a lot of those yellow vests would have been at least at some level complaining about they feel already that the economy has changed too much and that their old lifestyle has been threatened
2: it's true so if let's look at it in sequence higher competition will boost innovation there's there's little doubt for that now there are two consequences we should take into account the first one is higher competition and intellectual property rights so never look at one policy in isolation Uh, it's higher competition and a regulatory regime for property rights that will allow the innovator to keep a bit of the rent of the innovation it's making at the beginning but not too long Mm -hmm. Uh, and if we look for example at the pharmaceutical industry those rents have probably been there too long so then they start indenting the welfare Mm -hmm. of people so that's one change And the other is competition works well if you have a labour market where people who are displaced, as you highlight, can be put back in another job of the same level and quality as what they were doing fairly quickly. Um, And that's where I think we have evolved. And actually, all economists, we should do a big mea culpa because we all talk about the benefit of trade for everybody without looking in disaggregate. But that's changed a lot. Uh, And we're doing quite a lot of work, actually, on this. To say there's no doubt competition openness is good, but there's no doubt either that it's hurting some people. And these people we need to take care of.
0: especially if we look at the very low level of interest rates around the world and the fact that people expect them to remain low for, for long-term structural mm-hmm. reasons, at least for a while, that has changed people's view of what is a sustainable fiscal position for a government. You know, if, you've got, if you're paying less for your debt yeah. quite far into the future, you can probably afford to have more of it. If you were writing the convergence criteria or the fiscal rules for the European Eurozone now they would be very different, wouldn't they? I mean, even just in terms of what we think is a high debt level or an unsustainable debt level. So I, I agree with you that it would likely be different
2: and that the very low rate for a long time changes things. At the same time, I think what we don't hear enough in this debate is the initial what the initial level of debt is for some countries. Um, and some of them have very high debt and some of them... we. We still, uh, and I think rightly so, recommend that they should actually be careful to how much debt they, they, they've got. Um, the just great... to put it in
0: context. Sorry, but just so if yeah. we look, you mentioned the Japan example. I mean, Japan. Mm-hmm. It turns out now has have you know well over two hundred percent of GDP debt. We've always had a sort of thing in our mind that once you get into three figures, once you get mm-hmm. sort of to a hundred, uh, that's when things start to get. Uh, beyond the pale, I mean, do you think even that has changed if we're looking at the Japan situation or not? So I think Japan's very specific, not only because that's gross debt. If you look at the net
2: debt to GDP ratio, it's it's a lot lower. Also, it's got a very special uh, labor market where everybody's employed, even if, you know, they don't have a job of the same intensity from one worker to another. The cohesion of the society is very different from what we see in Europe. Um, the advantage or the comparative advantage of Europe should be that there is a euro area which, She's hanging all these nation states together and means that from a whenever one acts on a policy level, then it has an impact throughout the regions and that should minimize the positive or negative effort that anybody has to do uh, and I think that's where governments need to get back
0: to discuss it's in their common interest. Well, what surprised me uh, talking to Bruno Le Maire is there's going to be a whole chunk of the G7 Mm -hmm. finance ministers devoted to talking about just one company's proposal for a digital currency or a new global currency, the Libra. Um, Facebook only produced this proposal a matter of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And yet you have some of the most important finance ministers in the world spending quite a lot of their time focused just on that. Are we getting to the point where these... Companies are as important or more important than some of those G7 countries. So there,
2: I think there's one valid comparison, which is in terms of the people that say that this company could be could be um, the share of people using this company's application, right? And you have something similar in China, and that's also delivering a payment system, and so that can give an idea about what what that means. Uh, now a proper money, as you know, has legal tender because it's backed up by your state, uh, which wouldn't be the case here. uh, But at the same time, it would affect quite enormous amount of people, and it would have to be linked to the payment system. Um, so that's when it comes to, OK, if it's linked to the payment system, how can it affect it? How can it affect other currency? What does that mean for financial stability? And in that respect, I think it's uh, uh, it's not only normal, but it's for once, as you were saying earlier, it's very rapid reaction of finance ministers. So it's great that they're talking about this at the G7. <laughs>
0: Finally, you did mention uh, this question of whether we're uh, responding fast enough to climate change and changing our economy around to meet. I think there's probably universal agreement (laughs) that we're not, uh, any of us, responding quickly enough. But I wonder whether you've thought about, we talked before about the sort of reforms that have long been proposed in the OECD and having to go back and maybe tweak them to make sure that they're not having... Uh, inequitable consequences, you know, to think Mm. about the political economy. Are you also thinking about that for the environment? Because it struck me that a lot of, you know, there's i'm not sure I know the answer to whether you know combating climate change is going to be progressive or regressive uh for the income scale, but i'd kind of I think it's sort of important to know
2: no you're absolutely right so i i can 't give you the results because we've actually launched this um a few at least on my side a few weeks and months ago, but what we are trying to do is exactly that look at what type of investment which investment compared com, combines with a carbon tax, which one we know this has. Implication, And the Gilets Jaunes are here to remind us of that. Uh, the speed of the transition, how fast do we want to go? What does it mean for people's job? Because if you were in a coal mine, you're not going to do the same or oh, a nuclear plant, its not the same as working windmill. How do you connect? The energy, the renewable energy you're creating, what implication for the territories that, uh, and all of them are going to be affected. So it's a, it's a massive work we've we've started, and I'll give you the answer next well, time I'm, we meet. Well, I'm,
0: well that's very <laughs> encouraging. I'll have to make an appointment soon because yeah. uh, I am glad to hear that, but I'm a bit worried. If you, with all, with the greatest respect, that the OECD is not always the fastest to reach its conclusions on these grand questions. So. Uh, so keep I will, putting pressure forward, on us. <laughs> we will look forward to getting the answer, but I think it's something we're going to talk about more on this programme. Laurence Boone, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you, Stephanie. That leaves so much to talk about on future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week for the last episode of the season. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you can, take the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more people. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. And you can also find me on at This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to William Horobin in Paris, Bruno Le Maire, Laurence Boone and Laurence Speer of the OECD. Our executive producer is Scott Lamman, and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy.